Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Happy podcast day. Yeah. This one's 28. See? Episode 28. See? <laughs> when did we form this thing where we feel compelled to say something about the number of the episode? <laughs> I don't know, but we got to stop it because there's nothing about 28. Yeah. Uh, but I do feel, I mean, listeners, I'm sure you picked up on the fact that, well, we missed an episode and then I stopped doing social media and I, we did, then we did some episodes where I sounded dead inside. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure no. you, I'm sure you picked up on the fact that something was going on and basically it was nothing just like you know going into year three of this bullshit um but i'm feeling a renewed sense of zest um and a renewed hopefully my voice sounds less like i'm dead inside i i'm not dead inside for the record but i just have for a while been struggling to show the aliveness outwardly <laughs> <laughs> yeah between life and work and oh i don't know i look around though and i see people who just are normal and seem normal are they faking it i don't know i was hanging out with a friend yesterday and they were like so how you been what's new and i was like nothing <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing new to report <laughs> the same goddamn day every day yeah languishing that's what my therapist tells me it's called and we're all doing it we're languishing i did have to confront last year me mm -hmm. that dumbass signed up to teach a class <laughs> <laughs> and then immediately forgot about it Mm-hmm. as one does so then uh, like a week ago, I get an email that's like, hey, just checking in if you need any printouts or any technology stuff worked out before your in-person class that you're teaching in a week. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I was already overwhelmed. So then I had to build a two and a half hour class to then teach in one week's time. Oh, my God. It went incredibly well. Yay. I enjoyed doing it. The people in the class are a little, we'll see. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some, some interesting conversations that came from generational divides, I'll mm -hmm. say. Interesting. There were two people named Karen. Must be in their 60s. And they were talking to each other before class started. And they're like, did you know our name became a meme? <laughs> uh, I was just like, okay, this will be something. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, at least they're signed up to learn stuff. Yeah. It went well. Really good discussions. The opposite of the problem I expected happened where I had to rush through the end because it took too long mm. where I was like, there's no way I'm going to fill this time. 
And then there was like 20 minutes left and I was like, oh shit. <laughs> like, so I'm going to cancel this question break. So remember your questions and I'm going to work through two sections in a row and then we'll have big questions at the end. Wow. So you're going to do it again now that you have your... Well, I already have to because <laughs> year ago me scheduled multiple classes. Wow. <laughs> he was such a dumbass. So optimistic, probably before Delta happened and like we're light (laughs) the end of the tunnel. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because I was pretty much no help at all. The last time we talked about this, I was like, what the fuck were you thinking? (laughs) I couldn't tell (laughs) you. Well, actually, I could. I mean, I do remember the thought process where I've like, I wonder in my mind if I could ever find joy out of being a teacher. Mm. Because sometimes I do worry about in our fields as we age, like being pushed out of relevancy because of just, you know, you have to continually work harder to understand new generations, new technology and new trends. And so I was like, could I be happy going the teacher route? And I've thrown that away you know, if I'm not fighting in the water wars, um, <laughs> that maybe I'll like retire one day and be an adjunct professor. But so that, that that was all part of my thought process of signing up to teach these classes to see if I liked teaching or not. Any any word back from the jury on that one? I did enjoy it, but I am sort of leaning to maybe the ideal would be guest lecturer and not like teaching as an actual job. Mm. You do realize you have to be like famous or something to get those gigs. Well, not nece- not like small ones. Like my ex was a guest lecturer a lot at like community colleges and mm. it's mm. like, well, I've been a professional Marcom person. I've led teams and initiatives like I probably have enough to pop by a classroom and teach one class (laughs) one time yes yes I know I know so I did like it but that's good not sold on if I had to do it three to seven times a week and develop curriculums for multiple weeks in a row and grading grading is the shits yeah I would just get like a a set of dice and whatever they land on is the grade and it's ultimately a psychological torture experiment. You know in 20 years when you your ardent dream is to become a professor this episode is going to come back and bite you in the ass. Yeah, someone's going to say like this grade doesn't make any sense and then they'll use this as proof. You'll get canceled on whatever the Twitter is then. Wow. You're already worried about getting pushed out and you're the age that you are and here I am the age that I am yeah not wanting to know what nfts are and saying it's all hooey I've started saying crumbs (laughs) (laughs) because around my kids I can't swear but like I'm starting to loosen up I mean I can swear but I don't and so lately I've (laughs) I've started saying crumbs when something pisses me off. Oh, crumbs. <laughs> but, My sister says crumbs. Where does that come from? I don't even, I never have known anyone who said it, but I just. British television. Oh, maybe. <laughs> she watches a ton of British television. <laughs> so do I. My God, maybe that's where it comes from. Crumbs. <laughs> oh, fiddle dee diddle dee. <laughs> 
Uh, basically, I'm about to cross into the threshold of the age that I was always born to be, I believe. Hmm. I don't know. Aging is totally fine by me, except for like the physical pain and how long it takes to heal from something. Yeah, the fact that right at this very moment as we record, I'm running my foot over a thing to help with my plantar fasciitis, <laughs> which is a true story. <laughs> getting, yeah, that part of getting old blows. But I'm still in the, like, I'll avoid the doctor when at all possible. Yeah. I mean, at the age that you are, I think that is still okay. And I'm here to nag you when I feel like you need to. I mean, I've legitimately spent the last week Googling things like how to tell if foot bone broken. <laughs> if foot bone broken, do need doctor. <laughs> Why don't you just go to the doctor? Is your foot still bothering you? It's healed. Did I tell you my foot saga of dropping my incredibly heavy metal laptop on it? No, I thought this was from when you hurt your ankle. Oh, no. It landed, like, pointy side vertical down. Uh. And I was like, oh, gosh. And then it cut me. And then I was, like, swollen and bruised. But the thing that got me really nervous was that the greatest pain was on day four. (laughs) Like, every day it hurt more and not less. That's being old. Er, and I was like, older. Oh, and I was like, well, if I did break a little foot bone, can they even do anything? So I was like, just trying to Google, but I'm healed. Everything's fine now. Yeah, the thing's getting worse before they get better. That's a that's a function of being older. That was a new one where mm-hmm. I was like, it's day four. Why is it so much worse? Because <laughs> you're not a baby Wolverine anymore. But I go to the doctor. I like my doctor. But it was just something like this where it's like there's a good chance it's like not anything they could do. Yeah. Well, and the the stopgap of call the office and talk to the nurse. And then you start learning that basically no matter what it is, they're going to tell you to come in. So why even have that step? Mm-hmm. Right. And like, like I had full range in all my toes. I could like stand on my tiptoes. Like I was really pretty certain it wasn't broken or it was but it healed and when you break something in your foot there's nothing they can do yeah (laughs) so that's been my journey this week (laughs) i haven't really done anything outside of work and googling about my foot yeah yeah like i said here i'm just coming back to life We had a snow day last week, which I still have to work, but, you know, I got to work in my pajamas. But, yeah, kind of same. Nothing here. Still not a landowner in Vermont. I don't know. What other crazy fantasy scenario have I created to cope with the languishing? I don't know. That's it, I think. Oh, I know what else. We were digging through our podcast statistics lately, which we do sometimes when we want to feel better about ourselves. And we saw that we have new international listeners and like bona fide listeners in the UK, some in Germany, definitely Canada. And it's so exciting. I find that really cool and exciting. Whoever you are, we love you. Yeah. 
Yes, totally. And I just wonder what they make of us. And, you know, like Americans who hopefully aren't too true to the American stereotypes. But I'm curious what the take is on on our take on things. USA, USA, <laughs> USA. <laughs> wow, that happened. <laughs> We're number one. Uh, at lots of terrible things. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I mean, of course, we love our American listeners too. But it was really, it's just so fascinating to be like, you found us. I know, I know. It's so cool. And then that imposter part of me kicks in and it's like, why is anyone listening to us? (laughs) (laughs) Which is terrible. Um, But yeah, so that's cool. Yeah, send us a DM. Totally. Tell us where you're from. If we can start to build some podcast community instead of a... A one-way conversation. Totally. And especially from the UK. I mean, I haven't made a big secret out of how much of an Anglophile I am. But yeah, if you live in the UK and you find what we do interesting, let us know. I love everything about you. And also let us know what you thought about Charles and Camilla announcing their coronation plans while the queen was still alive because I had some questions. I had some feelings. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because I was talking in the last episode about going up to Vermont and like having a day to spend with my mom and talk to a grown up. And we spent a not insignificant portion of the trip talking about the royal family and how weirdly invested we are in them, even though (laughs) we're neither royalists nor British, but we feel a connection. I mean, I would love to see it pass over to Will and Kate, who I really like. I also would like to see that, but I don't know why. I have like... Other than just, like, I was a little gay boy with the Princess Diana appreciation. Yeah. (laughs) Where it's like, no, you don't get to be king, I have decided. Agreed. I mean, cheaters never prosper, right? Well, except. (laughs) Except, except, except. Except they cheat their way to the top over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Charles. I mean, I have more sympathy for him after watching the crown but Mm. you know still like get over yourself man but speaking about robbing cheating stealing your way to the top today's episode has got you covered a hundred percent i mean this is the antithesis of cheaters never prosper today we are going to talk about someone who prospered tremendously from cheating, lying, and all sorts of things until he didn't, but we'll get to that later. (laughs) Benjamin Siegel was the second of five children born to Max and Jenny, an Ashkenazi Jewish couple who had immigrated to New York from a region of Eastern Europe that is now part of Poland and Ukraine. With the completion of the Williamsburg Bridge in 1903, which connected the Lower East Side of Manhattan to the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn, which had been incorporated as one of the five boroughs of New York City just five years before. Many families, lots of them Jewish immigrants, who had been living in squalid tenements on the Lower East Side, moved to Williamsburg, perhaps the Seagulls among them. 
It was there in 1906, during this time of change and hope, that Benjamin Siegel, a.k.a. Bugsy, entered this mortal realm on, in a strange coincidence, the same day as our subject two weeks ago, February 28th. Shout out to our Pisces out there celebrating birthdays recently or in the upcoming week. According to our esteemed colleagues at astrology.com, quote, many people associate Pisces with dreams and secrets. And it's a fair association since most born under this sign feel comfortable in an illusory world. And maybe this resonates with you Pisces listeners, and maybe not, but I think it's an apt description for our subject today. Although his parents were trapped in a cycle of prejudice, limited opportunity, low wages, and poverty, young Siegel had dreams. He wanted a way out of the poverty he saw envelop his own family and those around him. When he was still a boy, he dropped out of school and began running extortion scams on local vendors with a friend, Mo Sedway. Siegel would approach a street vendor and ask for a dollar. When the vendor told him and the other kids to piss off, Sedway would pour kerosene on the vendor's stall and light it on fire. The next time the boys came around, the vendor was usually willing to pay up. This led pretty quickly to a full-on protection racket. During his teens, while running the protection racket, Siegel met a person named Meyer Lansky, who was a neighborhood kid a few years older than he was, with similar Eastern European roots. Lansky and Siegel became fast friends, and Lansky took Siegel under his wing in his burgeoning street gang, a Jewish counterpart to the already successful Irish and Italian mobs operating in Brooklyn at the time. Siegel learned about gambling, car theft, and other more organized forms of crime. By the time he was in his 20s, Siegel had built a reputation as a fearless, if hot-headed, soldier. He was the doer to Lansky's thinker. It was this reputation that earned him the nickname that stuck with him to his immense displeasure for the rest of his life, Bugsy. It came from the idea that at any moment he could, quote, go Bugs, or lose his shit, as we might say today. Siegel and Lansky's mob was known as the Bugs and Mayer mob, and when Prohibition went into effect, they expanded their activities to bootlegging. Lansky was also childhood friends with Lucky Luciano, future boss of the Italian mob, and through this connection, Bugsy became a freelance hitman for the Italian mob and later the Irish. Bugsy was allegedly one of the four men who murdered Joe Massaria, ending the Casalamaris War between competing families of Italian mobsters. After the murder of Salvatore Maranzano, head of the Maranzano crime family and instigator of the Casalamaris War, which was again allegedly carried out by Bugsy and three others in the Bugsy and Lansky mob, Luciano, now head of the Italians, and Lansky, head of the Jewish mob, formed the infamous National Crime Syndicate, a name coined by the media. This loose confederation of multi-ethnic crime families and organizations marks the beginning of modern organized crime in the United States. And the enforcement branch of the syndicate became known as Murder Incorporated, with Bugsy as a sometime hitman for the group. Between 1929 and 1941, when Murder, Inc. was shut down, the group was responsible for anywhere from 400 to 1,000 contract killings. 
As he had hoped, Bugsy's life of crime had made him very wealthy, and he flaunted this wealth by wearing expensive clothes and frequenting posh nightclubs. In 1931, he bought an apartment in the Waldorf Astoria Towers, a luxurious and exclusive building in Manhattan. And up to this point, Bugsy had been arrested multiple times for crimes ranging from drug possession and gambling to murder and rape. None of the major crimes stuck, though. Considering his extensive criminal activities, Bugsy enjoyed a mostly free and carefree life through the mid-1930s. By the late 1930s, though, some previous hits were coming back to haunt him. Alibis were being questioned, and some rivals wanted him dead. Always his protector, Lansky, with the blessing of the East Coast mob, sent Bugsy to California, where he had been traveling regularly for several years to establish gambling rackets with the L.A. family. When he arrived with the backing of Lansky and Luciano, and with the L.A. boss, Jack Dragnet, in prison, Bugsy and his newly appointed lieutenant, Mickey Cohen, assumed control of the gambling operations in L.A. Whether because of his natural good looks and flashy style or his superficial charm, which he could turn on when he wanted to, Los Angeles, and Hollywood in particular, welcomed Bugsy with open arms. During the day, he was establishing drug trading routes and sex trafficking rings, and at night, he was hobnobbing with Cary Grant, Frank Sinatra, and Louis B. Mayer. Jean Harlow was the godmother of one of his children. He loved the glamour and glitz, and he saw this as a fresh start. In L.A., he had no history, no baggage. People called him Ben, Benny, or Mr. Siegel. But Bugsy was a gangster through and through. He began using his connections to plan trade union takeovers and ways to extort studios. He even borrowed thousands and thousands of dollars from his Hollywood movie star friends, knowing none of them would have the temerity to ask him to repay. He reportedly got these air quote loans uh, of almost half a million dollars this way during his first year in L.A., Finally, in 1939, Bugsy was implicated in the murder of a mob associate and childhood friend. After two trials and two potential witness deaths, fishy, Bugsy was ultimately acquitted in 1942. Like so many times before, he had come through a free man, but his image in Hollywood was tarnished, and the fresh start he wanted so badly slipped away. People learned through the press about his criminal roots, and L.A. papers started running stories about Bugsy Siegel. While he wasn't exactly shunned, his access to the Hollywood elite was drastically curtailed. At 37, Bugsy was washed up for the second time. Always one to look for the next best thing, in the early to mid-1940s, Bugsy had seized upon a new idea for his next fresh start. Back in the 30s, Bugsy and old friend Mo Sedway had traveled to southern Nevada to establish gambling, drinking, and prostitution rackets catering to the crews who were constructing the Boulder Dam. Once they were established, Bugsy turned the operations over to Sedway and he returned to L.A., but now looking for other opportunities and a way to rehabilitate his image, if not his behavior, Bugsy's thoughts returned to Nevada. In 1945, developer and gambling addict Billy Wilkerson purchased 33 acres of land south of Las Vegas 
and began construction of a casino resort to be called the Flamingo. At the time, Lansky, Bugsy, Sedway, and Gus Greenbaum were investors in a modest hotel casino in Las Vegas called El Cortez. So when Wilkerson gambled away huge sums that were meant to complete the Flamingo, he turned to the mob bosses to come in as investors on his project as well. Lansky and the others saw the huge potential in the Flamingo, and they sold their share in the El Cortez to go in on the Flamingo. It was a big chunk of change, and with Wilkerson's issues with gambling, Lansky wanted someone he could trust on site to oversee the mob's investment. Bugsy began spending a lot of time at the site, and before long he had decided he wanted to be in charge of the whole thing. No one can say for sure what was going through his mind, but I don't think it's a leap to conclude that Bugsy saw this as a real opportunity to have a legitimate business enterprise and maybe recapture some of that non-fear-based status he had enjoyed in L.A. in the 30s. Bugsy, with the backing of Lansky, Luciano, and the East Coast mob, essentially forced Wilkerson out through intimidation. And once in charge, Bugsy started a quest to make the Flamingo the most opulent resort in the United States, which essentially took the form of an open tap of outflows. He demanded the finest materials and craftspeople, even though the country was still experiencing pretty severe post-war shortages of everything. Costs soared and completion was delayed. This 33-acre investment was becoming a bottomless pit of expenses with no end in sight. By the end of 1946, the resort was still not open and over $4 million in the red, or about $57 million in today's money. And by this time, Lansky was getting pressure from the rest of the syndicate to put a leash on Bugsy and get the Flamingo open. But in spite of his objective failure, Bugsy remained defiant. And I think this is where the myth of the like crazy visionary of modern Las Vegas comes from. People, I think, assume that Bugsy was defiant because he had this prescient vision of what Las Vegas would become. He was a dreamer, they say, or whatever. And he was a dreamer, but I think his vision in this case was a personal one. Bugsy told the syndicate that he alone would run the California syndicate and Las Vegas. He told them he would repay the loans, quote, in his own good time. Now, to be clear, to call them loans would imply that Bugsy had some autonomy, like the way a non-gangster would borrow money for a house. But Bugsy was not a free agent, clearly, so this was essentially his way of declaring independence from the mob. Historically, not a great thing to do. But Bugsy had a patron saint in Lenksky, and he received more patience than most because he had been a reliable and valuable member of the syndicate since its inception. In December 1946, the Flamingo finally opened amidst a freak rainstorm, unfinished construction, and poor attendance. Opening night was such an unmitigated flop, Bugsy reportedly went Bugsy at the event and in full view of the clientele. The resort closed again in January of 1947 to retool and, with the help of publicist Hank Greenspun, generate some positive buzz. In March, Lansky came from the East Coast to attend the grand reopening of the newly minted Fabulous Flamingo, and the resort casino at last began to turn a profit. 
But the pit of money that once clocked in at $4 million had grown to $6 million by this time, which is over $86 million today. Although Siegel thought his past mismanagement and brazen defiance of the syndicate would be forgiven now that the casino was bringing in, oh, about $300,000 a day. But patience for his antics had worn thin. In a syndicate meeting in Havana that spring, syndicate bosses, including his childhood friend and longtime partner, Meyer Lansky, voted to have Bugsy killed. On June 20th, 1947, Bugsy was sitting in the living room of his mistress's Beverly Hills home reading a newspaper when several shots from a military carbine ripped through the house. One slug blew Bugsy's left eyeball right out of his socket and across the room. Only two people attended Bugsy's funeral, his brother and a rabbi. His mistress, Virginia Hill, was in Europe at the time Bugsy was killed. She later committed suicide in 1966. No one was ever charged in Bugsy's slaying, although the names of hitmen Frankie Carbo and Frankie Carranzo have been mentioned as likely killers. But frankly, who cares? He was a dirtbag, a self-confessed serial killer, probably rapist, human trafficker, human garbage. Meyer Lansky biographer Robert Lacey once said, Ben Siegel did not invent the luxury resort casino. He did not found the Las Vegas Strip. He did not buy the land or first conceive the project that became the Flamingo. But by his death, he made them all famous. End quote. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How one psychopath can have that life journey. Yes. Yes. I mean, you, in spite of this really violent and pretty horrific end, I think it's fair to say he had a pretty charmed life um, to make it to the age of 41 at all for someone like this seems very lucky. Yeah, 100%. Like, how? I know. I know. Well, I think it was Lansky, you know. I think he was his guardian angel. And he was, you know, he was smart and just as impulsive and violent and all of those things as Bugsy was. He was the same in terms of being careful and strategic and... You know, they they were complete counterparts. And I think they made a pretty effective duo in that way. Um, They they balanced one another out. I did read a lot of quotes from people who knew Bugsy and said, you know, he was very popular. He was well-liked, and especially with mobsters, because he was kind of the first one to jump into the fray. The thing Mm -hmm. that I I look at is people said he – they didn't call him brave, but they said, oh, he, he had the most guts of anyone I ever knew, someone said. And it's like, it's not guts if someone doesn't feel fear. Yeah. <laughs> right? He was just a straight-up sociopath. Like, so, I mean, even in a world where we might acknowledge some kind of begrudging respect of some kind, if we were to view things through a mobster's lens... I still don't think he deserves it because, again, he wasn't he didn't have guts. He just didn't feel fear. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, but he like a lot of sociopaths, he had that he had that kind of superficial charm that that they can have and he could turn it off and on. 
but he was also very hot-headed, very impulsive, and and ultimately a violent scumbag. Mm-hmm. So looking at the pop culture, mm. I mean, first and foremost, there was no way to really quantify or detail, but Las Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I don't even really go into it because I was like, how do you even... It's like one of the most weird and unique cities in the world Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it came so much from him and just like yeah las vegas as a whole i don't even know how else to describe or explain yeah the impact of what he did what he was a part of with building that city Mm -hmm. so i won't (laughs) (laughs) but um it, it has to be acknowledged yeah and so even before I get into, like, direct representations of him in media, mm-hmm. I wanted to start with his time, going back to his time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So he was welcomed in the highest circles. Close friends with movie stars, known to associate with Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, Cary Grant, as well as studio executives, mm-hmm. Louis B. Mayer. And Jack L. Warner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Warner Brothers, MGM. Mm-hmm. Actress Jean Harlow was a friend of his and godmother to his daughter, Millicent. Mm-hmm. Bugsy bought real estate and threw lavish parties at his Beverly Hills home. He gained admiration from young celebrities, including Tony Curtis, Phil Silvers, and Frank Sinatra. In Hollywood, Bugsy worked with the syndicate to form illegal rackets, devise plans to extort movie studios. He would even take over local trade unions like the Screen Extras Guild uh, or the Los Angeles Teamsters and stage strikes to force studios to pay him off so that unions would start working again. (laughs) Bugsy borrowed money from celebrities and didn't pay them back, knowing they would never ask him for the money. So... During his first year in Hollywood, he received more than $400,000 in loans from movie stars, which is over $8 million today. Yeah. Crazy. It is crazy. And then the quick tangent that I found really interesting, he had several relationships with prominent women, including socialite Countess Dorothy DeFrasso, who took him to Italy in 38, where he Mm -hmm. met Benito Mussolini, who he tried to sell weapons to. Uh, Bugsy also met Nazi leaders Hermann Goring and Joseph Goebbels, uh, who he instantly disliked and later offered to kill. Mm. And the only reason he didn't kill was because of the Countess begging him not to. Insane. That's crazy, yeah. An insane life. Like, how does he hook up with a Countess? Like, we've chatted about it a bunch over the course of true crime discussions, but those powers of charisma Mm -hmm. and persuasion that psychopaths can sometimes tap into, Mm -hmm. it's got to be that. And, I mean, he was a nice-looking guy. For the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, it's all relative. (laughs) But because of this, Bugsy has become the prototype for Hollywood's version of a gangster. Mm. 
So Morris Moe Green is a fictional character appearing in Mario Puzo's 1969 novel, The Godfather, and the 1972 film of the same name. Both Green's character and personality are based on Bugsy. Mm. Starting with the novel, Roger Jelinek wrote in the New York Times that the book was, quote, bound to be hugely successful, and not simply because the mafia is in the news. Mr. Puzo's novel is a voyeur's dream, a skillful fantasy of violent personal power without consequences. Mm -hmm. The victims of the Corleone family are hoods or corrupt cops. Nobody you or I would actually want to know. Just business, as Don Vito would say, not personal. You never glimpse regular people in the book, let alone meet them. So there's no opportunity to sympathize with anyone but the old patriarch, and he makes the world safe for his beloved family, end quote. Mm. So the novel remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 67 weeks and sold over 9 million copies in two years. And of course, sparked numerous sequels (laughs) to much acclaim. And... Speaking about acclaim, let's talk briefly about the movie. So, obviously, Marlon Brando (laughs) as Don Vito Corleone. uh, Al Pacino as Michael Corleone. It was directed by Francis Ford Coppola, and the author, Mario Puzo, assisted with writing the screenplay and other production tasks. So, The Godfather grossed approximately $269 million worldwide, again, at that time. (laughs) So way more money now. And won various awards, including three Academy Awards, five Golden Globes, and one Grammy. It was the highest grossing film of 72 and briefly the highest grossing film ever. It's considered to be tremendously significant in cinematic history. Since its release, The Godfather has been widely regarded as one of the greatest and most influential films ever made, especially in the gangster genre. It was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry of the Library of Congress in 1990, and it's ranked the second greatest American film in cinema behind Citizen Kane by the American Film Institute. Wow. And also featuring Alex Roca as Mo Green. A.K.A. Bugsy. Mm Mm-hmm. The Bug Man. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Uh, so the film, of course, like the novel, was followed by sequels, The Godfather Part 2 and 74, and then The Godfather Part 3. Mm-hmm. So the sequel, <laughs> The Godfather Part 2 won six Oscars and became the first sequel to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. And like its predecessor, Part 2 remains a highly influential film. It's considered to be one of the greatest films of all time. Mm-hmm. And 97, the AFI ranked it as the 32nd greatest film in American film history, and it retained that position for over 10 years. Hmm. And it was selected for preservation in the U.S. Film Registry in 1993. So, mostly following the trend, The Godfather Part Three was also an extremely successful movie, financially hmm. and critically, though not as successful as the previous installments. Though it didn't win, it was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Wow. And then the last stop on the Godfather train is the world of video games. Uh, There's a truck backing up with a beep, so taking a pause. (laughs) In a funny coincidence, Alex Rocco grew up in Cambridge, Mass., and was a member of Boston's Winter Hill Gang. Oh, 
and was briefly detained regarding a murder at one point after an alleged personal incident triggered the Boston Irish Gang War of 1961 to 1967. Damn. So maybe they're so successful because uh, some of the people involved were (laughs) very connected. (laughs) Okay, the beeping's done. So in 1991, there was a side-scroller very creatively called The Godfather. (laughs) (laughs) And then in 2006, there was an open-world adventure game also so creative called The Godfather. (laughs) I mean, if it ain't broke. Yeah, and that one was originally released for Microsoft Windows, PlayStation 2, the original Xbox. It was later released for PlayStation Portable as The Godfather Mob Wars, Xbox 360 as The Godfather, Wii as The Godfather Black Hand Edition, and PlayStation 3 as The Godfather The Dawn's Edition. Mm. So it received generally positive reviews across most system, was a commercial success selling over 2 million units. Wow. Then a sequel based on the second movie was released for (laughs) PS3, Xbox 360, Microsoft Windows, and that was in 2009. It had mixed reviews, didn't sell as well as the first game, which caused them to scrap plans for a part three. Hmm. So going back to Bugsy. The 1981 American film Gangster Wars tells the story of three teenagers based on real-life gangsters, Bugsy, Lucky, and Michael Lasker, a fictional character who was most likely modeled after Mayor Lansky. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were growing up in New York's ghettos during the early 1900s to their rise through organized crime. So the movie was a three-hour opener for a subsequent TV miniseries called The Gangster Chronicles, which covered seven decades of their life. And then in 91, the movie Mobsters depicts the rise of the commission, focused on the empire built by Lucky Luciano, played by Christian Slater, Mayor Lansky, played by Patrick Dempsey, and of course Bugsy, played by Richard Greco. What weird casting. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Like, none of those people are menacing. I mean, I guess Slater is in a weird way, but not like, that's so weird. Patrick Dempsey? <laughs> McDreamy is a gangster? <laughs> well, see, kid. I'm, uh, <laughs> gotta go to this hospital real quick, see? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, the movie did not have the same success as the Godfather trilogy. On Rotten Tomatoes, it holds an approval rating of six. What? <laughs> awesome the website's critics consensus reads quote despite an abundance of style and some big names mobsters can't escape its empty plotting numbing violence and gangster movie 101 concepts end quote dang but as hollywood often does that same year was another movie called bugsy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a highly fictionalized movie biography of Bugsy Siegel featuring Warren Beatty as Bugsy and Annette Benning as Virginia Hill, his love interest. Mm-hmm. And then just a fun fact, Beatty and Benning met on the film and they've been married since 1992. And you're too young to know this, speaking of our generational divide, but that was like a huge deal then because Warren Beatty was one of the true... I mean, it would be like someone... 
and I hate this kind of terminology, but like someone snagging Leo DiCaprio, like he was that he was like <laughs> the consummated bachelor will never marry blah, blah, blah. And Annette Benning quote unquote tamed him. So that was big news back then. She did it. Yep. So in the world of pop culture based on Bugsy, yep. their marriage is part of it too. <laughs> um, Unfortunately for them, this movie was a success. Uh, generally positive reviews from critics, and it was a minor box office hit, grossing $49 million off of a $30 million budget. Mm. But most importantly, it received 10 nominations at the 64th Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director, and won two, Best Art really? Direction and Best Costume Design. Okay, that makes sense. And it won the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Drama. Mm. So Roger Ebert gave the film four out of four stars saying, quote, Bugsy moves with a lightness that belies its strength. It's a movie that vibrates with optimism and passion with the exuberance of the con man on his game, end quote. And it has an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Hmm. So imagine you're Christian Slater. <laughs> you're Patrick Dempsey. You're making this movie <laughs> about... Gangsters, Bugsy, the same year yeah. another movie comes out. Your movie, Total Trash. The other movie, 10 Academy Award nominations. Which, I mean, to be fair, though, what? Like, <laughs> how did that happen? It wasn't bad, but it wasn't, like, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it's a different time. It was, you know, it was fluff. It was, it was like mob light for people like me who would never see The Godfather. And then, in a tripling down, also in 1991, Armand Assant played Bugsy in the romantic comedy The Marrying Man. What? Alongside Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger. Wow, I didn't know that had, like, real characters in it. <laughs> uh, it was an unsuccessful film. It has 10% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Is that also where they met? <laughs> uh, maybe, actually. <laughs> um, so, yeah. There was one clear winner in the trifecta of Bugsy films that year. Yeah, really. And that wasn't it in terms of Bugsy in 91, but that was it for film. So still in 91, author Tim Powers imagined Bugsy as a modern-day Fisher King in his novel Last Call, which, written in 91, came out in 92. And that novel won the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel and the Locust Award for Best Fantasy Novel. Hmm. Um, a biography of Bugsy was released by the television series Biography in 95... Um, and then that was re-released in 2005 as a DVD. Bugsy's portrayed by Michael Zegan in the immensely popular HBO series Boardwalk Empire. Mm. So that series ran for five seasons, starring Steve Buscemi. Uh, it received widespread critical acclaim, particularly for its visual style and basis on historical figures, and of course for Steve Buscemi's lead performance. Mm. The series received 57 Primetime Emmy Award nominations, including two for Outstanding Drama Series, and altogether it won 20. Wow. 
Uh, it also won the Golden Globe Award for Best Television Series Drama in 2011, two Screen Actors Guild Award for Outstanding Performance by an Ensemble in a Drama, and that was 2011 and 2012. And then continuing, Bugsy's also a central character in Frank Darabont's TV series Mob City and is played by Edward Burns. So even though this TV show didn't find commercial success, it had generally favorable reviews, and TNT's chief uh, exec, Michael Wright, even defended the decision to greenlight the series in a 2014 interview, commenting that, quote, Mob City was a chance. It didn't draw the audience, but I'd do it again tomorrow, end quote. So staying in TV, Bugsy's portrayed by Jonathan Stewart in AMC's series The Making of the Mob, New York, a docudrama focusing on the history of the mob, and the first season of that show is about Lucky Luciano's story. Mm. Interestingly, the show had mixed reviews, but it did have an audience. So the other one, the Mob City, had good reviews, but no audience. So that one's just one of the weird things about Hollywood being a fickle industry. Yeah. Going back to movies, Joe Montana played Bugsy in the 2015 film Kill Me Deadly, which is based on a 2009 play uh, featuring Bugsy by Bill Robins. Mm-hmm. Isn't he? He's like 70, isn't he? No. Okay. <laughs> um, Bugsy Hollywood was mentioned. Magic. Yeah. <laughs> Bugsy was mentioned in the song titled Two of America's Most Wanted by Tupac mm. and Snoop Dogg. And that was on the album All Eyes on Me. Jonathan Sadowski played a heavily fictionalized Bugsy in the fifth season episode Miss Me, Kiss Me, Love Me of DC's Legends of Tomorrow, a science fiction series with supernatural overtones. It it features Bugsy being resurrected after his assassination. <laughs> so found his way into the comic world. Mm. Uh, then the 2010 RPG game Fallout New Vegas features an antagonist by the name of Benny, who is based on Bugsy. Huh. Aside from being one of my brother's favorite games, this is... <laughs> an immensely successful game. It's estimated to have sold around 12 million copies worldwide. Huh. Uh, the game received a Golden Joystick Award for RPG of the Year in 2011. It was That's nominated. <laughs> yes. Sorry. There's I awards for everything. <laughs> but a Golden Joystick? Mm-hmm. RPG of the Year? <laughs> it was nominated for two BAFTA Awards for Best Strategy Game and Best Story as well as a Navigator Award for Supporting Performance in a Drama for Voice Actor Felicia Day. Mm. Um, It's since obtained a cult following, with some critics referring to the game as the best in the series, as well as one of the best RPGs of all time. Hmm. But then most recently in the world of Bugsy, David Cade portrays him in the film Lansky, which came out last year. Mm -hmm. Um, Which... I certainly didn't hear about, but pandemics, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's a whole lot. The last movie, though, I wanted to talk about was Bugsy Malone, a 1976 gangster (laughs) movie that's a musical comedy film written and directed by Alan Parker. So it was a co-production of the United States and the UK, and it features an ensemble cast of 
only child actors playing adult roles <laughs> with Jodie Foster and Scott Bayo in the major roles. So it tells the story of Bugsy Malone and the battle for power between Fat Sam and Dandy Dan. <laughs> Even though the movie is insane in hindsight, yeah. it received critical acclaim and praise drawn for the screenplay and direction, its musical numbers, unique narrative, and performances of the cast, particularly Jodie Foster. Huh, yeah. She's always been a star. Yes, clearly. In 2003, it was voted number 19 on a list of the 100 greatest musicals as chosen by viewers of Channel 4 in the UK. In 2008, Empire ranked it 353rd on their list of 500 greatest movies of all time. The film received eight nominations at the 30th British Academy Film Awards, including Best Film, and it won three Best Supporting Actress and Most Promising Newcomer to Leading Roles for Foster and Best Screenplay for Parker. Wow. It also received three nominations at the 34th Golden Globe Awards, including Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. So clearly, Hollywood loves Bugsy. Yeah, yeah. And though he may not be name-dropped in every other movie, TV show, or books, Bugsy is one of the key figures in all gangster media. Mm -hmm. And his connection to Hollywood helped shape a lot of culture in and of itself beyond him mm-hmm. with the movie studios and the actors and the bribes and the strikes. Like it's incredible. I mean, maybe not like the biggest ripple effects ever, but like this man, this one dude yeah, has massively impact the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, he led to so many archetypes. So even where it's not a one-to-one, a lot of films that talk about the mob or organized crime have someone who fits his archetype, right, of the kind of neurotic but flashy. But, you know, he was so known for that quirk of hating that nickname and caring so much about his image. And that definitely has carried through, even in – um, we were talking about off pod before that Robert De Niro movie analyzed this where he's kind of like a mob boss who's in therapy and, you know, hot headed. And I mean, I think that can be even connected back if you if you really mm-hmm. look at it, this like hot headed, violent, but like neurotic, ultimately very neurotic and in kind of petty ways gangster. And I think that's taken from that persona hundred percent i mean it's just wild like i love how much he hated being called bugsy and the fact that bugsy is what we know him as yeah because it's like fascinating story but i don't want to get it mixed up like the dude's a fucking piece of shit yeah for sure (laughs) so this isn't like a hero worship of gangsters and bugsy like he was a, a psychopath. Yeah. Absolutely. A true monster, murderer, rapist, violent piece of shit. Yes. So just making it clear, like, I, I purposefully said Bugsy every single reference because he hated it. Same, same. I mean, I have kind of a, a thing that I stick to where I usually talk about victims by their first name. 
to help humanize them. And I usually talk about um, the perpetrators by their last name. But in this case, I felt like the only thing that he could and should be called would be Bugsy. (laughs) (laughs) Poetic justice. I'm trying to remember, like that nickname came from crazy like a bed bug. Is that where that's derived from? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know it's like going buggy, Bugsy was a saying, but bed bug is the... So I wonder if it also had connotations of like poverty attached to it too. That oh maybe because going buggy him. and there was a gangster, another gangster Bugsy before him, but mm-hmm. his personal story came from the bed bug one. Oh and really? It pissed him off. Like I think he would just kill people that called him Bugsy. Yeah, I love that Bugsy, Bugsy, Bugsy piece of human garbage which is also like i didn't get into it but like loosely connected to bugs bunny and all of his godfather parodies and mafia parodies yeah i mean i think this one is one of the bigger ones in terms of because there are so many that are even not pop culture like you said they're in the culture culture las vegas and yeah yeah, and that was, I felt like I was copping out a little bit when I was just like, Vegas. Vegas. <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. The Rat Pack. I mean, even thinking of the culture that grew around Las Vegas and knowing that Frank Sinatra was a fan of him, like, like I mean, I could have gone on forever, it felt like. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the Sinatra thing, like, takes it to a whole next thing but I think the Rat Pack definitely I don't I don't know that they had the I I mean I think they were shady as fuck but I don't think they had that they weren't psychopaths I think to go to the level of being actual mobsters but I definitely think that you know in the formation of their little clique and group they emulated certain Mm -hmm. things that they saw with their organized crime friends and you know we're involved in low-level things. Totally. I totally like, agree. Like possibly assassinating the president or <laughs> killing his mistress or whatever, you know, I mean. Low-level. Low-level things like that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's such an interesting one. And you didn't out me in my oh. embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> you want to out me now that I've given you permission? Well, it's outing both of us. <laughs> as we were pitching around uh episode ideas we landed on like oh let's do bugsy malone yeah bugsy malone but not in reference to that movie we just thought his real name was bugsy (laughs) Malone. malone which i feel like what's that thing called where people think that Shaq was in a Shazam movie or something. Oh, the Mandela effect. Yes. I feel like this is some kind of Mandela thing because I absolutely 100% never saw Bugsy Malone. It was even before my time. Like I was alive, but I was definitely not of the age to be allowed to watch gangster movies. You were totally 100% not alive by a lot. Like why do we even know of that name? I truly don't. And I was certain of it. Me too. And then I started researching it and I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Also that movie, they like, they like, it's 
uh, maybe I'll cut this out, but like they they hit people with cream pies. Like they don't what? shoot them because they're all children. They're children gangsters, so they kill people with pies. But there's like over and over and over again, it's just like cream pieing someone in the face. <laughs> it's just like this movie is insane. How how was it critically received? How did it win awards? <laughs> no, none of these kids can hold accents all the time. Some of them are British. Some of them are American. <laughs> all doing old timey American gangster voices. It is an insane movie that somehow was like critically revered. So bizarre. So bizarre. And bizarre that both of us not only knew of it, but thought that Bugsy Siegel's name was actually Bugsy Malone. And unfortunately, Chachi was a bit of a star. (sighs) I love Chachi. (laughs) But who knew? Who knew? I couldn't have known. Well, not that um, Jody doesn't have some questionable friends and hot takes on her (laughs) shitty friends. But... At the very least, she outshone him in that movie. Yes, yes, totally. Well, I mean, you hate to see someone like Bugsy have such an influence on society because he was such a dirtbag. But at least, as he was famous for saying, they only kill each other. And I think that was mostly true. Yeah. We'll just forget about all the women that he trafficked and possibly raped and all all that stuff. What a wild ride. Yeah, totally. But it's nice to have one that we can just unabashedly talk about and not worry about any good people being hurt by us indulging our little flights of fancy. And now, of course, the Flamingo, famous for... Mormon parent rock pop Donnie and Marie. Really? That's their like home base. Oh, yikes. Well, I was reading that the Flamingo has over the years distanced themselves from their humble beginnings by <laughs> <laughs> doing various things and demolishing anything that he ever set foot in. I wonder why. <laughs> Well, now they're the kind of squeaky clean of family fun Las Vegas. They are kind of one of the family ones. Are they? I find all of Las Vegas gross. Because you can go look at all those smelly flamingos in the garden. Yuck. I I went once, and it just, it's not for me, as you like to say. I've gone a lot, Mm -hmm. and I value it for the food and for the shows outside of that it's not for me i'm not giving them my money Mm. (laughs) i'm not sitting at a table throwing away hundreds of dollars (laughs) yeah i don't know so it's really like a a concert destination so like i saw shakira there Mm. i saw alicia keys there i saw muse there like I'm, i'm not going to gamble and then if i'm there for a work conference then it's all about the food Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I like to stay home, make podcasts, (laughs) drive to Vermont, raise chickens. (laughs) Yeah. Just a five and a half hour. (laughs) Uh, 
so glad I told you. I know you'll let me relive that <laughs> many times. <laughs> well, listeners, thanks for going on this journey with us. Yes. And as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. 100%. Boop. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production. Boop.